It's the Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni. On today's show, we are going to discuss diversity and inclusion with our guest, Marvin Worthy. Marvin is the founder of Worthy Consulting and Training. And as if to cement the need for the conversation on diversity, right on cue, we have news this week out of the U.S. Interior Department, where several employees have told CNN that Secretary Ryan Zinke repeatedly says he won't focus on diversity, an apparent talking point that has upset many people within the agency. Three high-ranking interior officials from three different divisions said that Zinke has made several comments with a similar theme. Diversity isn't important. I don't care about diversity. Or I don't really think that's important anymore. Now, given the atmosphere of politics in our country, especially over the past two years or so, the topic of diversity and inclusion seems more relevant than ever. We currently have a president who, when he announced his candidacy in 2015, stated right out of the gate that immigrants from Mexico were bringing drugs, were bringing crime, and were rapists. This was an example of a sentiment that obviously had traction and it took hold. It persisted throughout the 2016 election and ultimately led Donald Trump to the White House. It was shocking to many of us, and to say the least, it revealed a serious need for us to examine deeper issues of race in our society. We'll discuss with our guest his efforts over the years in this area, his training approach, and his insights. And later in the show, the Progress Pod was at the March for Our Lives in Washington, D.C. this past weekend, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, our guest, Marvin Worthy. Thanks for being here, Marvin. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm pretty excited to experience this experience. (laughs) Is this your first podcast? (laughs) It's not, actually. Okay, Uh, great. It's my second. Your second, all right. All right. one in Harrisburg for, I forget the news channel. Sure, sure. Not too long ago. So if we want to get started, uh, I'd love to hear about your background. Um, Tell us, you know, how you got to where you are right now. Well, do we have time? We'll make time. (laughs) Um. Originally from South Carolina, I was born in Union, South Carolina, a very small town. I'm sure you've visited occasionally. Uh, we have several traffic lights now, so it's pretty <laughs> exciting for us. Uh, grew up in uh, inner city Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up in this location through college. I am a graduate, three-time graduate of Shippensburg University and also the former associate dean at Shippensburg University. So I got connected to this community through Shippensburg University, got very heavily involved in uh, the community, Um, was invited on a number of occasions to help have dialogue and conversation around the issues of diversity and inclusion. But I got started in this business, if you will, or uh, realized it was my passion by accident. I was at a conference in Harrisburg and my, my mentor, Diane Jefferson, was presenting received an emergency phone call and said to me, I need you to do the presentation. And my response was, I'm not ready. (laughs) And she said, you're ready. Here's my outline. I said, it's not enough. She goes, you can do it because I have to leave. And she left the room and the audience waited. And I started with the outline. And at the end of it, I had several universities approach me and ask if I'd be willing to come to their respective institutions and deliver the same training. I said, sure. They said, what do you cost? I said, can I get back to you? (laughs) (laughs) And that's really was the start of my consulting business. Now, prior to that, I had an interesting experience in a graduate class that was being taught by the president of the university at the time, Dr. Sedia. And he posed a scenario that dealt with issues of 
uh, diversity and inclusion and wanted uh, the classroom to respond. And it was dead silence. And I remember being somewhat, um, I don't know if the word upset is right, is right but su- definitely surprised that no one had a reaction. And I remember leaving the room just feeling frustrated that my colleagues could not even answer, nor did they seem to be interested or aware of what to do. And uh, shortly after I walked out of the classroom, the president approached me, found me outside in the hallway and brought me back in and said, you need to go back in and challenge your colleagues. And so I did. And my challenge was, how do we collectively and individually make the difference that's necessary when we are assigned the responsibility of working with students who depend on our ability to create a safe, loving, caring, compassionate environment? And that's kind of when I really took hold of um, walking into my passion and trying to create not only campus communities, but communities and workplace communities, uh, teaching leadership how to develop an inclusive workplace environment or campus environment, et cetera. Fell in love with the idea of um, trying to get people to think differently outside the box, um, to ask themselves difficult questions and demand honest responses. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, was able to, quite honestly, watch people make transitions right in my sessions, who gave testimony to the fact that they were not aware of their lack of awareness and that they, in some instances, I've had people say to me, "Um, you know, I've been holding on to certain things in my life and I don't even know where they came from. I simply jumped on and just continued to live life the way that the people closest to me were living the life. Not that I had any certain belief or disbelief in, in any particular person or subject, it's just that I followed the leader, if you will. And so I just got heavily involved in it, uh, started doing consulting work as a graduate student, um, decided at some point I needed to do this thing full time, uh, which is a scary thing to leave a job that's... Uh, at least my family and friends thought I was crazy when I left Shippensburg University to pursue uh, both businesses full time. But I knew if I didn't start soon, I don't know how much time I would have left. Right. You know, I'm, I'm just 55 years young, uh, but nonetheless, I'd like to be able to get it started. So 19 years ago, I started doing this work completely full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my passion really is just to get people to have dialogue and conversations about things that they don't really have an understanding about. Uh, when I ask most people, why is there a division? Uh, most people can't tell me why. Uh, they speculate. Or uh, when I ask people who have a tremendous uh, disregard for certain groups of people, they can't tell me why. And so I like to try to engage people in conversation. And engagement is very different than educating, obviously. Engaging is to have a, a conversation back and forth. And my hope is to always be able to identify a deeper level of understanding that may allow me to identify the areas of development. Uh, I don't call them areas of weaknesses, but areas of development, how to take the conversation to the next level and talk about in in more depth why they feel the way they feel, why they think the way they feel, and be able to hopefully bring some clarity, some education, and teach in the very moment. So So when you first arrived at Shippensburg, uh, how would you describe the state of things there? I thought I was back in Union, South Carolina. Uh, let me. Tell <laughs> what you, year was this? 1981. Oh, my. And let me tell you why. And I want to be clear about this because I'm so glad that I stayed at Shippensburg University, and I'll, I'll share why in a moment. When I arrived at Shippensburg, keep in mind, I'm a first-generation college student, African-American male, coming to a predominantly white college in a rural community. And I remember going downtown and 
going to the Dollar General store because with ten dollars you can you can furnish a whole residence hall room with ten dollars from Dollar General. And so I remember cars driving by and I heard words being shouted from the car windows of the cars passing by, words I haven't heard since Union, South Carolina. And trust me, they were not pleasantries. They were words of hatred and bigotry. And I remember saying to myself, not again. I remember going to Shippensburg, going to class and had one of my professors pull me out and say, why are you here? And my response was, uh, room 202, room 202, I'm scheduled to be here, sir. He said, no, do, do yourself a favor. You, save, you can save yourself a whole lot of time and money because you don't have what it takes to succeed at this level. So I remember thinking to myself, now I could go home, back home to North Philadelphia and let down my family and my community since I'm the first generation college student. Didn't Was not aware of anyone in my community had ever gone to college. So there's a lot of pressure. I second guessed whether or not I had what it took to be successful, but I didn't. I didn't imagine that would be my first interaction with my first professor. Make a long story short, uh, when I graduated with my second master's degree from Shippensburg, I remember having a conversation about that experience. And I remember saying to the professor, thank you for not believing in me because I use your unbelief as motivation Mm -hmm. to succeed. However, find a different method for motivating students. Mm -hmm. The other reason I'm happy I stayed is because I met some professors who were absolutely extraordinary, who mentored me and coached me and taught me And so I'm so glad I didn't allow one individual experience or one individual who had a mindset, unfortunately. And because I stayed, because I trusted uh, the people who recommended me to Shippensburg, I stayed and met some incredible people, uh, built some incredible relationships, and those relationships still exist today. Um, And so I, I was a very active student at Shippensburg, having conversations and questions about diversity and inclusion, and being a role model, too. I didn't just talk the talk. I met as many people as I could. I had as many conversations as I possibly could with people who were different. Because I believed when I arrived, it doesn't make sense for me to hang out with people who who were very similar to what my experience was prior to coming. I wanted to meet people I would never otherwise meet at a college or university. And I did that very intentionally. Uh, became a student leader and created opportunities for us to interact and engage each other in, in contemporary issues and conversations that allow us to have dialogue. We agreed to disagree sometimes, but we left better than we came. I um, hear a kind of uh, fearlessness in your experience that you uprooted from South Carolina and we're a long ways from there, uh, geographically and culturally. Do you feel like that's true about you? You, you just would... You can enter these situations, and you're going to find your way through it one way or another. Well, you know, with practice, um, I've done a lot of transitioning in my life. Um, And oftentimes that transition left me uh, as an individual that was part of the underrepresented group. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have any, I didn't have the luxury of trying to find a new place to go or something to do. It was mapped out for me, so I had to learn how to engage and dialogue with all kinds of groups of people. And I had to learn how to how to sort of stand on my own and have a voice yeah. in, in the midst of uh, things that were pretty, I mean, pretty blatant in terms of injustices and racism and classism and so forth and so on. And I just fought my way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew on, over a number of years in how I would do that. You know, you almost had to learn what was the best 
response? What's the best way to engage? How to establish a relationship? And over time, I, I guess I developed a formula, if you will, of how to be able to meet people where they were mm-hmm. and try to establish a rapport and a relationship, at least of respect. You didn't have to like me or love me. I just wanted you to respect me. Now, you growing know? up, did you have role models, people you looked to for inspiration, authors, artists, people in your family? You know, uh, I grew up in a two-bedroom home in South Carolina with 16 of us. Uh, my grandparents, their children, their children's children. I didn't even know we were poor until I moved from South Carolina to North Philadelphia because I never wanted for love or attention. But we were clearly poor based on the definition of poverty. Right. But my grandmother taught me a lesson in the South. See, there were things that happened to me as a young boy in the South that I couldn't name. I knew it was peculiar, but I didn't know what what was happening. Keep in mind, we're talking about the 60s. Yeah. You know, so you're talking about serious racial tension. And I experienced some of those things and didn't realize what they were. I'll give you two examples. I remember being in, uh, walking to school and I reached into my pocket and my lunch ticket blew out of my pocket into the field. So when I got the lunch that day, the principal approached me and says, where's your lunch ticket? I said, I accidentally lost it in the field. And he said to me, you go find that ticket. And don't you come back here until you find it. So I went out looking for it. And I keep in mind this field, right? Is, the weeds are six foot high. I couldn't find the ticket. So I went home. He said, don't come back unless you find the ticket. Well, he called ahead of me at home and said I left school without his permission, which I thought was peculiar. What was even more interesting was the way that he approached me, that in fact that he attacked me, that I needed to go do that. The second thing that happened, I would walk home from school with these two sisters who happened to be twins. They were white, and I'm African-American. And they would stop right at the same location every day and say, okay, you can stop here. And I don't know about you, but I was always curious about what I couldn't have. (laughs) So I'm thinking, what's on the other side that they don't want me to see? Uh, The forbidden fruit. Right? And so I pretended to leave, and I backtracked and came back, and uh, I walked into this community, and I heard words, same words I heard in Shippensburg in 1981, in the 60s in the South. First time I ever heard the words, but again, I knew they were not pleasantries. I could sense, I could see visually, non-verbally, the anger and the disgust that I had the audacity to walk into this community. How old do you think you were at that oh, time? First grade. Oh, my gosh. It's amazing what you remember. Mm-hmm. But I remember those things very clearly. I can see I can see the whole scene all over again. Then I remember being in classroom one day, and I heard the voice of a young girl screaming from the bathroom inside the classroom. And up against the door was one of my classmates. So I ran over and pushed him out of the way because I wanted to rescue her. I wanted to be a hero. Because I dreamed of being a superhero. I thought you could apply to those jobs. You know? <laughs> so I pushed him out. The door opened. Who does she see first? Me. Yeah. What does she think? It's me. But I had a room full of witnesses, at least I thought. Teacher marches over and said, what happened? She points at me and said, he locked me in the bathroom. I said, it wasn't me. It was him. And she said to me, if she said it was you, it was you. End of story. I remember thinking to myself, Peculiar. You're not going to investigate the witnesses. And so I remember experiencing those things and not really knowing why the unfairness or the injustice of those situations occurred until I got older. And my grandmother said something to me when you talk about a mentor. Now keep in mind, my grandmother, 
you know, born, oh man, I don't know, 18 something probably. And um, she said this to me. She said, son, there'll come a time in your life where you'll meet some people who will dislike you, even try to attack you verbally, physically. But don't allow the incidents that occur among those people to have you close your eyes, heart, and mind to the people that you will meet who will be extraordinary. Her lesson to me was, although you may experience some difficulties and some unfairness and injustices in your life, keep an open mind, open heart, open eyes, and open ears, and you'll meet some people who are extraordinary. It sounds will, sounds like you took that life. to sounds like you took that to heart. Absolutely, everything yeah. you set up to now it seems to embrace that mantra. Absolutely. So th- that was my transition here. Got involved in the community pretty quickly. There was a tremendous need, obviously, for this discussion mm-hmm. that most organizations at the time either didn't have anything in place, wasn't sure why they needed to have something in place, and those that were courageous enough and who could see it, who could see beyond their present situation. Uh, would bring me in to have conversations and dialogues around those particular issues. This feels like a movement now, Hmm. the idea that diversity and inclusion has to be a part of the dialogue we're having. I mean, the fact that the Secretary of the Interior is saying he doesn't want any part of it kind of proves its relevance to me, at least. When do you think this kind of began? When did people start to say, you know what, we need to get into this topic, we need to look into diversity and inclusion? Well, I think it's been a conversation for um, several decades before today. I think shortly after the election, Mm -hmm. there was a tremendous resurgence of an overt, whether it's overt racism or sexism, et cetera, that people felt comfortable for some reason. The president gave them license. Well, I think a number of people would agree with that. Uh, that it wasn't about the presidency, it was about the person who was running for president mm-hmm. and having a platform to articulate certain things that gave, whether it was his intention or not, it, it appears to me as I crisscrossed the country that there seems to be a blatant disregard and disrespect for one another. And there's a confidence that exists now that I haven't seen since the 60s or 70s, an, an outward um display of hatred and bigotry. Let me let me give you some examples. Uh, I've been asked to come to some colleges and universities where uh, they've been challenged with students who are coming to campus who are very comfortable using the N-word. There's a number of universities and school districts and so forth and so on who are challenged with the conversations that are happening and quite frankly are not sure how to dialogue around those kinds of issues how to interrupt it, how to educate. And so there's a tremendous need, in my opinion, to work proactively and to be able to react to what is happening. Hence the reason we started the training, moving from bystander behavior to courageous conversations. Because when I say nothing at all, the assumption is that I agree. And so there's a need for us, particularly those, and I hold those in leadership role accountable to making sure that um, they are the lead and getting members within their organization to understand the value, not only for the students or the people or the employees who are on the receiving end, but how diversity and inclusion brings value to all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's easily dismissed because the misconception is that diversity is for them and not for us. 
Let me give you a clear example. For the last 25 years, I've had people say to me in sessions, I'm sick and tired of this diversity crap. And my response is, you sound very passionate. Can you tell me why you're so frustrated? In fact, tell me what diversity is. And the response is often this. Well, diversity is when, um, it's sort of when the, st- and when you know, <laughs> and my response is, it doesn't matter if I know you've decided to reject something you can't even define. Right. I said, so, uh, with your permission, allow me to afford you a definition. And then you decide whether you want to accept or reject. Cause at the end of the day, it's still your decision. Mm-hmm. And here's what has has happened probably 99.9% of the time. The person who said that comment says to me afterwards, I never understood diversity to mean that. I thought it excluded me. I didn't know it included me. I have a whole different perspective about diversity. So what is the working definition of diversity that that you apply? Well, I'm a a little different. Okay. See, I, I need for it to make sense. I need for I need for us to be able to to connect at the same level because oftentimes when I do the work, the audience they're not all at the same level, right. and so for us to continue the training or the or the keynote or whatever it is I'm participating in, I need to have a working definition that we can all wrap our arms around. And so here's how I do it. I ask my well, let me ask the two of you, um, Jeremy and Pete, right? Yes. I want you to pretend that you're hungry. I actually am hungry. Okay, easy easy then, right? <laughs> I'm taking you to lunch in Sacramento, California. Okay. You're my special guest. It's a formal affair, so I need you to get dressed in your formal attire. So I want you to assume that the only thing you have left to put on are your shoes and their slip-ons. You ready to go? Who needs more time? All set. Ready? Let's eat. <laughs> Jump on the jet. We fly to Sacramento, California. We land, get in the limousines, drive to the banquet hall. When we arrive on that banner, it's our names. It says, welcome in your honor. When we walk into the banquet hall, we notice that all the tables are set. At each setting, there's several knives and forks and spoons, which might suggest that we're going to be here for some time. First thing served, soup. But it's not a predominant soup like rice soup or corn soup or tomato soup. You know the kind of soup you can identify right away? No, this is one of those creamy soups. You know, the ones that if you've had any interesting cafeteria experiences, you want to investigate before you partake. (laughs) And because you're my invited guest, I begin the investigation. I stick my spoon into my soup with the hope to pull something out I can identify. I'm unsuccessful. I don't know what this is, which might suggest that whatever individuality existed has now been cooked away. So, so your personality, your race, your ethnicity, your religious preference, your sexual orientation, all those things that make you uniquely you no longer exist. You look alike, believe alike, sound alike, come from the same place. Now, here's the interesting thing about soup. It's easy to eat. It doesn't require a whole lot of skill or courage. And because you're accustomed to it, it's sort of easy. The same way it's easy for us to surround ourselves with people who look like us, who believe what we believe and come from where we come from. See, I get that. We're oftentimes more attracted to that which we understand and know. I get that. But the question becomes... If I am in a position of leadership and I'm servicing or leading a group of individuals or serving a clientele or customer base, the question becomes, can I afford only to interact with people who only look like me and only believe what I believe and be successful and develop and deliver a high quality level of service? That's the question I ask my audience to ponder. Meanwhile, here comes the second serving. It's a tall salad. I don't have to ask the question what it is. Everything is identifiable and recognizable. 
I can distinguish the carrots from the croutons and the croutons from the onions. Everything is identifiable and recognizable, which now suggests that your hair color, your eye color, your personality, your collection of experiences, your ethnicity, your race, your religion, your gender, all those things that make you uniquely you exist. You are identifiable and recognizable. You have a place, a space, and a voice. But a salad isn't easy to eat. It's twice as difficult as soup. See, it requires a knife and a fork. Then you add the red cherry tomatoes, you know, the ones you try to cut and they pop across yeah, the table. Yeah, they run away. They run away, right? And so oftentimes we set aside the red cherry tomato. Why? Fear of being judged, of being embarrassed, rejected, ostracized. See, there's a lot associated with transitioning from soup to salad. It requires a different set of skills and a tremendous amount of courage to do something that's different and unfamiliar. And so when I pose the question, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, am I talking about soup and am I talking about salad? And the audience 100% of the time will say salad, and they're correct. And the difference between the two is what? Well, the soup requires you to eliminate who you are. It's not okay to have an identity or to be individuals. Where the salad says that we can coexist in our individuality. So diversity is not about some of us, it's about every one of us. And inclusion is the activity, right? Diversity we recognize that consists of so many different variables, so many different characteristics. But the inclusion is how we treat each other in this community. You know, the carrot is an interesting character in this story. He talks about when he arrived to the bowl of salad that he was intimidated because he came from a community of all carrots. And when he looked into this community and saw all this variety, he wasn't sure what to do. He was paralyzed because he was overwhelmed. See, he had no cultural translator, no navigator, no way to speak the language or what was the unwritten rules. And because he wasn't sure, he was fortunate to have heard a conversation between a tomato and a cucumber that said this. The cucumber said to the tomato, where did all this beauty come from? The tomato said, silly, the beauty exists because each of us have been afforded the opportunity to contribute. See, a bowl of tomatoes is a bowl of tomatoes. It's not a tossed salad. Now, it has its own uniqueness and significance. And a bowl of cucumbers, it too has its own individuality and significance, but it's not yet a tossed salad. But when the ingredients come together, the beauty blossoms, the aroma is stronger, the flavors enhance. Why? Because each of us have been afforded the opportunity to make a contribution. So the carrot said, when I heard that conversation between those two ingredients, I knew there was at least two people in this community who saw value in me. And that gave me the courage and the strength to finally walk into a new environment that I didn't know much about. Because I felt, I knew for sure there was two people who saw value in me. And sometimes that's what one, that's what we need. We need to know that there's someone who supports who we are, who will be encouraging, accepting, and welcoming. And we can identify those individuals within an organization. We sometimes find the courage to walk into something that can feel so incredibly overwhelming. And so I say to people, so you're sick and tired of diversity crap. So you're sick and tired of being belonging. You're sick and tired of having an opinion. You're sick and tired of having a voice. And the response is, Mr. Worthy, I understood diversity means something very different. I didn't know it included me. I thought it excluded me. So my point is that when we can be on the same page about what the true definition is and not allow individuals who have absolutely no clue about what it is to begin to talk about why it has no value but yet can't define what it is, that makes sense. 
Yes, it does. What I'm hearing out of that, and tell me your thoughts on this, is we need to engage out of our comfort zone. Um, that, you know, as you're saying, we can move easily within our tribe and, you know, the established community where we think alike, we are alike. But there's a, a need to push beyond that to engage what I'll call, for lack of a better term, are others, uh, other people in the community. Um, does that sound like what where we're going with this? I, I, you know, I could fill this house up with people who love me unconditionally. Some of them look like you, look like you, speak a different language, born in a different country, different religious background, or religious preference, sexual orientation, collection of experiences, the language they speak. Because I, under, I understood pretty quickly the importance of walking in what's uncomfortable. And I say even to my young people, and, I, and, I, and I, I say it to all my audiences, but even to my young people, I say this. The more time you spend being uncomfortable, the more uncomfortable becomes comfortable. Now, there, there is great reward pushing through. You become exhausted trying to pull through. And so what, what, I, what I charge people with is think about the thing that makes you most uncomfortable and walk towards it, push through it. Because oftentimes I've had people leave discussions because they were uncomfortable. And what they've yet to understand is that when you, when you push through the uncomfortability, that's when the learning begins. That's when the aha moments happen. Mm -hmm. That's where a deeper level of understanding, that's where relationships are built. And I remember talking to a colleague of mine um, we worked together at Shippensburg, Dr. Phillips, and we both happened to be African-American men. But he grew up in uh, rural western Pennsylvania. I grew up in urban inner city, North Philadelphia. And our conversation went like this. Huh? What? Seriously? No kidding. What is that? Really? Now, one would assume because we have some physical, some same physical characteristics that our experiences are the same. But there's a difference within culture. So it's intraculture versus interculture. Mm -hmm. And so my point is that if I can have a dialogue with someone who clearly has the same physical characteristics, but yet we are culturally different, and what I was able to learn about him and his family, I went to go see where he lived because I was intrigued. He wanted to come where I lived because he was intrigued. That can happen across races, across socioeconomic lines. If we allow ourselves to open our books to people and let them leaf through the pages, because the cover never tells the story. You have a unique intellect. You sound definitely like the type of person who wants answers, who pushes into gray, pushes into gray areas trying to seek out truth. Now, a lot of people are not as comfortable with going outside of their their safe spaces. And how do you address people who maybe don't have your kind of force of will? I think it's more of creating an environment where people feel safe enough to be transparent. Mm -hmm. And that's a skill. Yeah, for sure. To be able to create a room of complete strangers and have them believe in the idea that for the next two hours or three hours or a day, day and a half, that we're going to be transparent because the facilitator has created an environment that will allow us to. That's key. And that I've given people permission to be imperfect. Mm, that's that's a big one right there. 
That's huge because most people don't want to appear vulnerable. Especially in front of a crowd. Especially in front of a crowd. And especially if you hold a position of leadership and you're thinking is that people perceive you as someone who knows it all. And for the first time, you're having a dialogue about something you know very little about. And most people can't handle being perceived as vulnerable or lacking of something. And so my goal is to create an atmosphere that says we cannot expect to know what we haven't been taught. Right. So you kind of give them a a safety. Absolutely. In fact, I ask my audience to give yourselves permission to be imperfect and allow me to coach and facilitate a dialogue that will happen between all of us. Mm -hmm. This will not be pitch and catch. (laughs) I'm not going to throw in you catch. No, I'm going to facilitate a dialogue because the gifts that exist, we all hold in each one of our pockets. And so if I can facilitate a dialogue that will allow you to exchange your thoughts, ideas, and experiences, and to do it in an environment that will allow us to be civil in the process, and when the need when the need presents itself, to apologize and forgive throughout the process mm-hmm. and create a safe environment. And so it's not so much that I'm looking for answers as I am trying to facilitate a dialogue that will allow them to find the answers for themselves. Because mm-hmm. I believe that everyone has the answers to their difficult questions. It's can someone facilitate them or give them a vehicle by which they can begin to openly dialogue about what that is. Now, this leads me kind of back to something we were discussing a little bit earlier. Uh, unconscious biases. This is a an interesting concept. And I think... A lot of what you're talking about, where people are afraid to voice an opinion that might be wrong or impolitic, how do you see unconscious biases playing in to creating the dialogue or healing the dialogue, maybe? When we understand the socialization process of how we learn certain things that we are conscious of or unconscious of, that we are behaving and perpetuating certain things and we're not even aware of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Even in our language, for example, and I think you've read Mara's book. She talks about uh, 35 dumb things that well-intended people say or do. And, and the one thing that's interesting, and we have dialogues about it all the time, I've had people say this to me. Marvin, I don't see you as black. And my response is, um, how's your eyes? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I understand what you're trying to say. Right. That was you, good you, intention. You're trying to tell me that you love me, but you're not sure how to do it because the space in which you grew up understanding. Let me back up. I understand that you're trying to tell me you care about me, you respect me, you love me, but your challenge with trying to how, to how to break through that you've been socialized to believe that that's not possible. And so in order for you to be able to say it, you have to have a condition attached to it. And that condition is, now, before I tell you I love you, I don't see you as black. Because to love you and see you as black is difficult in the way that I've been socialized to believe. And so my response to those individuals is this. I, I'm okay with you seeing me as black. Because it's a large part of who I am. And if you decide to be friends with me, to be colleagues with me, to spend time in the same space with me, you will be impacted by my blackness. Mm-hmm. And so you can't deny it. You have to embrace it. It's a part of me that I embrace. And so if we're going to be in a relationship, I'm not going to tell you I don't see you as white. 
I see you as white and I see all the wonderful things that's on the inside of you. And I need for you to see my blackness and learn about the inside of me as well. Now, the intention wasn't to offend me necessarily, right? But if I'm aware versus unaware, I mean, think about that statement. Mm -hmm. But I'm more interested, as you mentioned earlier, Pete, I'm interested in understanding why you can't see me as I really am. This was a part of the book that I, as I recall, was intention versus impact. That's it. And what I find interesting is the way you dealt with the impact, which became a learning moment for you and this individual, which I think is uh, an incredibly enlightened uh, position to take. As the book detailed, not everyone, people don't always look to intention to try and understand what's being said to them. And so it's all impact. But what you just said, I think, was really powerful in terms of trying to dissect intention, whether it's good, bad, or whatever the case may be. So with unconscious biases, is there, in your training, is there a way that we can go about addressing this in our daily lives to affect change? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think the first thing is to be very honest about where you are uh, in, in regard to your level of awareness and understanding before you can move to action. And what I mean by that is that if you can have a honest conversation um, about your experience up until this point. And what I mean by that, has your experiences allowed you to see outside of yourself, outside of your community, outside of your circle? And if it hasn't, what opportunities have presented themselves for you to do so and you've chose intentionally not to? For example, are there organizations that exist that you could join that joining those organizations may be somewhat uncomfortable for you because that's not your comfort zone? You may agree with the mission and the vision of the organization, but to become a member of that organization, you become the underrepresented member. Mm -hmm. And that requires you to be in a space you're not accustomed to being in. And in order to- I'm getting nervous just thinking about this. <laughs> Right. Right. And so so see, I, I oftentimes don't have the luxury of retreating. Right. You know, let me give you an example. When I go to colleges and universities, for example, I'll say to my white students at a predominantly white institution, you are at a disadvantage. And let me tell you why you're at a disadvantage at a predominantly white institution. They look up at me like waiting to hear. I said, because there's a world that's waiting for you to be able to contribute to a work environment where you can interact and engage and communicate with people who are completely different than you. And that may be the first time in your life you've been asked to do so. And here you are at a predominantly white institution that based on the demographics alone, doesn't allow for those relationships and experiences to happen on their own just because of the demographic. It's just, mm -hmm. not no. it's just not feasible, which requires you to be intentional to build those relationships because the demographics Otherwise, won't allow for it to happen on its own. Then I look to my students who are underrepresented and say, you, had a, you have an advantage. And of course, they look at me like, an advantage? Really? <laughs> well, let me tell you why you have an advantage. You don't get to choose who your professors are. You don't get to choose the group, the work group that you work in. You don't get to choose the people that live on your hall and then that, that's your roommate. And so every single day of your experience, you're going to have to engage with people who are different. Now, wouldn't it be awesome 
if both the students of color and the non-students of color got together and be intentional about creating opportunities where they can share who they are and their experiences together. And the hope that when you leave here, you're marketable. Because the expectation once you leave is that you already know how to do that. Right, right. And that's not true. It's not being taught. And if you had a predominantly white or predominantly African-American college, if you don't have the opportunity to engage with people who are different, you're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Particularly when the expectation is that I'm looking to hire someone who can bring that value to us. Not that we got to spend $20,000 to teach how to have a conversation with someone's different. And so you're putting yourself at a disadvantage in terms of your ability to be marketable, mm-hmm. if you will. And, and so join organizations that will force us to have dialogue and conversation. I mean, Franklin County Coalition for Progress, for example, is doing some tremendous work. Yes, they are. They are intentional in creating the environment and identifying the folks who could bring um, the skill set to have the kind of dialogue that is so necessary, not in just our community, but in all communities. And to create a space where people can come and learn what they wouldn't ordinarily learn or haven't had the opportunity to learn because the learning that they're providing is not always available. Mm-hmm. I was asked to do uh, facilitate a discussion after the, the movie or the documentary, The 13th. I attended that. That was an opportunity for people to be, to be exposed to information that will force us to rethink, unlearn, relearn, and then have dialogue about how you were impacted by this information. Those are great opportunities for us to ask those difficult questions that demand honest responses for ourselves, for our families, and for our communities. I totally agree. Well, listen, Marvin, we could go on. Uh, We'd love to have you back sometime. Um, This is an important conversation. But we're going to wrap it up here. Yeah, before we go, <clears throat> excuse me, before we go, um, you've got a, a workshop and a training coming up. Do you not? Uh, I do. Absolutely. Tell us, tell us about that. Well, we're pretty excited about it. This is uh, round two, if you will. Uh, we did in February diversity and inclusion training, concentrating on bystander behavior, how to move from bystander behavior to courageous conversations. Uh, it was well attended. Uh, the response we received, a uh, great positive response to individuals' growth and development in that day and a half. And some people and organizations are working to do more work within their organization, so I'm excited about that. And there's been a call for us to do it again, and so we're going to be doing that same session again on April 23rd and 24th at the Core Free Library. Registration you can get on the website, uh, worthyconsulting.org. And then we also, was there was a request for a diversity 101 session for those who this is the first time They've had some dialogue around this issue. And so we're offering Diversity 101 on April 16th at the Core Free Library as well. And so we're pretty excited. We, I wanted to respond, and Franklin County Coalition for Progress wanted to respond to the request of the people who attended. So we decided to create both the bystander training and the Diversity 101 because it was requested. Okay, great. Thank you, Marvin. Welcome. And stay with us. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the March for Our Lives demonstration that was held in Washington, D.C. this past weekend. I'm Pete Mazzoni. With me here is Melissa Deacon, 
And of course, Jeremy Kate. Yes. So I'll get it started. Um, I remember that standing off, and we do. I did get this audio, and hopefully we'll hear it. There were three very young people, um, and I mean they looked to be between eight and eleven, and they stood on the cement planter, and they were very persistent and very intense, and they were they were chanting, "We've had enough." And I was just amazed by their energy and their enthusiasm. And they were unrelenting. What about you? I would say the thing I remember the most was uh, during the the, uh, Emma Gonzalez speech where she uh, stood in silence for a few minutes. And at first I thought she's overcome with with emotion or something. And that's why I couldn't see the stage or monitor really. But it really was a reflective moment. If you were able to uh, understand what was going on at the at that time my my one of my uh barometers for what was going on was watching my daughter who she really she transformed in the way she was kind of absorbing what was going on and she became very deadly serious and that's not normal for her she's a she's a playful lighthearted kid but you could see that this was having an impact and it was amazing to watch her watch the rally and kind of bring it home. And, you know, the other part of this that, right or wrong, I I feel almost a little bit of a sense of shame as an adult that they're having to do this because we're not taking care of business. Nothing else has worked to this point. You're right. (laughs) You're right. What are your thoughts, Melissa? I think I was expecting to see an adult take the stage at some point, and I was so impressed that it was completely student led. Um, so just hearing the poise and the maturity, um, and for them to do this in front of, you know, how, how many hundreds of thousands of people coming from a place of their own pain and, and tragedy to be able to speak such a powerful message. Um, it was so inspirational to me, even thinking about Emma's speech and her taking that, that moment of silence. I, I started to realize a few minutes in, what I thought she was doing um, because she had mentioned the six minutes, I think 20 seconds that it took for the gunmen to go through the school um, and for their friends' lives to be lost. And that was the the time frame. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the six minutes is, is a long time to be silent and for hundreds of thousands of people to be silent. I think that moment was, yeah, you know, like, yeah. wow, I'm taking this in, like yeah. really what happened and, and how these kids are, really rising up to speak their voice. Yeah. What's astounding to me is the level to which, I mean, it's apparent that these kids have grown up so much in one month <laughs> that yeah. since yeah. this has happened. It's just, it's, it's yeah, so you, impressive. Y- you watch David Hogg, one of the student leaders in interviews, and it's like he's been doing this his whole life. I mean, it, and I think it, what it comes out of, at least my opinion of it, what it comes out of is his conviction. Yeah. The same way with Emma Gonzalez, her conviction is just driving her. And yeah. I think that's what allows them to get on these stages and talk to millions of people. Yeah. You know, this is TV cameras were everywhere. So one other observation I have is that when we got up out of the subway, one of the first observations my daughter had was she said, what is the military doing here? And you remember the trucks that were yeah. parked? And I said, well, they're here. Because terrorists sometimes drive cars into crowds. 
which was another disappointing thing to have to kind of, you know, share with my daughter and realize mm -hmm. that this is the world that we've created. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but you and I at this point, this is the world we've created. We're either contributing to it or not. And this is where we are. And I guess just keep coming around to that. And I think these kids are facing that reality and they're saying, <laughs> we need to do something about this enough's enough. So I think yeah. that was the bottom line of their message. And what I was so impressed about was they expanded their message beyond just the Parkland shooting. So the students um, who were leading this in Parkland knew that it was their privilege that gave them this platform to speak. And instead of um, speaking for others, they chose to invite others into the conversation, their peers. So there were students from Chicago, from other, from LA, from other cities around the world who are experiencing gun violence on a daily basis and gave them the opportunity to speak because they realized that this issue goes beyond even mental health issues, which are there, and, uh, and uh, gun violence issues, which is there. But also there's an underlying um, the issues of poverty and racism that mm -hmm. contribute to gun violence as well. And so they just took this to a whole other level, to a deep place to say, we need to address a lot of different things. I was also really glad to see the voter registration people there. Yeah. Because, you know, we can go on and we can hold rallies and we can do this ad nauseum, but it's the ballot box. That's where things are actually going to change. And so I'd love to see, you know, and a lot of those issues that you just brought up, you know, aren't being addressed by the current administration. Um, it's thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. So hopefully, um, you know, the kids, when they turn age, that they do register and they do actually vote. Right. I think that's just key to moving forward more than more than anything else. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, I'm here for my students today. I teach at an elementary school as a music teacher, so I teach kindergarten through five. So I have a lot of different range of students, those who are more aware of what's happening and those who are not aware. And when we have drills, really get alarmed and freaked out. And we've been having more and more. So I'm here for them. Um, I'm here today because our hometown has experienced uh, a lot of stuff with uh, violence and gun violence, violent New Jersey, okay. South Jersey, and um, I think it's time that we start to put our foot down and stand up for next generation and make things safer. I hope to see gun control, actually reasonable gun control legislation happen. I'd love to see the Second Amendment repealed, but I doubt that's going to happen in my lifetime. This is the first time I've ever protested anything, and I'm 65 years old, and, and um, you get jaded people my age because nothing's happened. So kudos to these kids who uh, have re really reignited. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and how long were you in law enforcement? Well, uh, I'm in my 41st year working for the FBI. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay, wow. So um, I don't speak for them, but uh, this is something I believe. And um, it's one of those things that I'm not against guns or hunting or anything like that. But I'm against assault rifles being out in public, in the civilian field. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great day. Thanks for No problem. Thanks for listening to the Progress Pod. You can find us online at progresspod.org. Send us an email to progresspod at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter. We're at the Progress Pod.